about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Isaiah 41. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword to wind-blown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not travelled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. The islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, Be strong. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith, and the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, It is good. The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I've chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear. For I myself will help you, declares the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them, and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them, the wind will pick them up, and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. 
Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds, so we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing, and your works are utterly worthless. Whoever chooses you is detestable. I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes. One from the rising sun who calls on my name. He treads on rulers as if they were mortar, as if he were a potter treading the clay. You told us of this from the beginning, so we could know, or beforehand, so we could say, he was right. No one told us of this. No one foretold it. No one heard any words from you. I was the first to tell Zion, look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. I look, but there is no one. No one among the gods to give counsel. No one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds among, amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. Uh, the second reading for tonight comes from Ephesians chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Good evening, friends. Great to be with you. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting in the building or online, welcome. It's great to have you. Uh, we are continuing our walk through this middle section of the book of Isaiah, which is majestic and incredible. It's a word of comfort to God's people, but it's a word of comfort that is all about expanding their vision of who their God is in the midst of the chaos of their present. I really love the prophecies in Isaiah. Last year during the pandemic, when things were the most complicated, I found my home in Isaiah and found that this big vision of God is indeed the thing we need for stability in unstable times. One of the things I feel most about this year, and it's been mentioned by a few people tonight already, is just this uncertainty about how the year will unfold. Things can change so quickly. Uh, for personally or nationally, in all kinds of different ways, and you just, you just don't know. Uh, lots of people are commentating on what this uh, uncertainty does to us, uh, the powerlessness that comes with it, the anxiety that is raised up in us. 
And the big question for us this evening is, how are you handling uncertainty right now? And what is your go-to in the midst of that? Because Isaiah 41 is really aimed at the powerlessness, the uncertainty that Israel feels in the midst of their circumstances. Israel, as you remember, have been conquered, uh, first by Assyria, a great superpower, and then by Babylon, another power, and there's a big other power rising, Persia, on the scene as well. And in the midst of all these things, the word used to describe Israel uh, in this text is a worm. Or perhaps this one was on my lemon tree yesterday, little caterpillar. Isaiah says, do not be afraid. Or God says, do not be afraid, you worm Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear. That's how it feels to be Israel right now. As there are these huge political upheavals across the world. Don't underestimate what they're experiencing. It's kind of as if America had invaded Australia And then in the next century, China had invaded Australia. And then in the century after that, India had. Kind of this constant upheaval and change. One commentator talked about how they they felt utterly powerless, like driftwood at sea, at the mercy of forces, totally beyond their control. Isaiah 41 is for the worms, for the overwhelmed for the powerless, for those giving up, for those not coping. It's a word of where to find certainty when everything else is adrift. And this, the, the certainty is nothing less than the God we know and we love. So let's, let's walk through this chapter and find out what's certain for us as we walk through the uncertainties. And the first thing we see in this chapter is this ma- magnificent claim that our God calls forth history. Now, that's a little uh, carving of Cyrus with four wings, which is cool. Uh, Cyrus was the first great uh, ruler of the Persian Empire, uh, which was the, the third, as I said, in a series of three superpowers that arose in the ancient world. And as Isaiah is writing, Cyrus is coming to power and showing promise and threat. And at the beginning of this chapter in Isaiah, there's questions uh, about Cyrus that God wants to ask. Cyrus isn't named, he's named in a later chapter, but have, have a look at this. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. This is a courtroom scene a summons to a place of judgment. In fact, this chapter begins with a courtroom scene and it ends with a courtroom scene. Things are on trial in the chapter, but notice the nations are summoned. This isn't just Israel. This is a talk about the bigger things happening in all of God's world. And they're brought to trial and to decide on a particular question. Verse 2, who... Who has stirred up from the east? Persia was east of Babylon. That's why this is Cyrus. Calling him, Cyrus, in righteousness to his service. The question that God asks the nations is who is in control? Who stirred up this new superpower? Who is in charge of the tumults of history? 
And it speaks of Cyrus. He subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, a windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed. He seems to be impervious, running through the earth, destroying at will a new fierce, threatening superpower. But in this court case, there is only one voice. There are no other witnesses. There are no other arguments. There's no defendant. Just silent fear. As the Lord asks again, who has done this and carried it through? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. God before the nations challenges them and says, who has raised up Cyrus? I have. And not only that, he's raised up Cyrus. What does he say just before it? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, Lord, with the first and with the last. God's not just claiming to have raised up one superpower. He's claiming to have called forth every generation, one after the other, every kingdom, one after the other, every people, one after the other. He claims to be the God who calls forth history, one moment at a time, utterly sovereign, in utter control of all things. It's a stunning picture of God. But it might make you a little uncomfortable. Because what does it mean straight away for our time? Does it not mean that our Lord, this God, has called forth this time of COVID? If he was over the superpower of Cyrus, he most certainly is over the power of right now. Now, there's complexity to that and many questions that might raise in you. But the word as it is to Israel here is, in fact, a word of comfort. Remember, Israel feels powerless. They feel like worms. They feel little. They feel adrift. And God, as he claims to be the one who calls forth history, is in fact saying to them, guess what? You are not adrift in capricious evil powers who are are pushing everything here and there. Everything that happens is by my hand. Everything that happens is not beyond me. Do not give in to fatalism. Do not give in to nihilism. Do not believe for a second that the world is spiraling downward. I call forth every generation one by one. And it is infinitely more comforting to know that the Lord of history is over our time now than to assume that we are just in a random time driven by forces outside God's control. It doesn't answer all the questions, but it does give us a certain place to stand. Our God calls forth history. Our God is the Lord of all history. But maybe the big question this uh, then brings out for us is, well, what is his character, particularly toward his people? Because one thing to be the Lord of history, but what is his character toward particularly us? And the, the beautiful thing through the middle of this chapter, which isn't a court scene, it kind of drifts in and out of the court. In the middle is this beautiful affirmation and promise to God's people. 
though the nations are afraid at the prospect of another tumult of political power, Israel is told not to fear because their God holds them by the hand. Throughout this whole section, there are two big words, help and hand. And they kind of go hand in hand. God by his hand helps us. What does he say? But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, verse 8, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its father's Father's corners, I called you. I said, you are my servant and I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you and do not be dismayed, for I am your God and I will strengthen you and help you. Straight away, God uh, speaks to his people and speaks about their whole history. Look, look straight away. He says, Abraham, my friend, Abraham, my beloved. He looks all the way back to the beginning of God's people, to their first descendant, and then looks forward to Jacob, the one a few generations down from Abraham. He speaks to their, you are my chosen people. You always have been. You are my servant. And even in this time, I have not rejected you. Though my judgment has fallen upon you, do not fear, I am with you. It's a promise of God's presence in the midst of the times that they are facing, in the midst of their exile, in the midst of their uncertainty. And then he starts talking about hands. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, which speaks of his power, his strength, That there is enough power in his right hand to help regardless of what is happening. So strong is his right hand that those who rage against Israel will be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose them will turn and perish and be nothing. They they won't even be able to be found in the phone directory. Those who wage war against Israel will be nothing at all. The right hand of God is powerful enough for them. But did you notice what's in God's left hand? His right hand is filled with power, but for I am the Lord your God, verse 13, who takes hold of your right hand. So in his right hand is power, and in his left hand is what? Israel's hand. This God, this Lord of history, this God who calls forth the generations one by one, holds his people by his hand, by their hand. It's a picture of ultimate power, yet of close, tender care. Of a father who is at once strong enough to defend from any enemy, and yet is also strong enough to never, ever let his child go. You see, Israel, in the midst of what they are facing, are not to depend upon their understanding of the way things are unfolding, their ability to comprehend God's purposes, their ability to perceive God's hand in Babylon or in Persia, but in the promise of God's presence with them, in his power to redeem them, in his goodness toward them. Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob, little Israel. Do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. So what does it mean for this God to have this power and hold his people by the hand? Well, he he pictures this worm becoming, in verse 15 and 16, a threshing sledge, something that rips apart the grain, that pulls the good from the bad, an, an object of judgment. 
Israel will go from being nothing to being something powerful in God's hand. A transformation is afoot for the nation of Israel. They will fulfill a central place in God's purposes by his power on the one hand. Yet on the other hand, it speaks of those who are poor and who are needy, who are searching for water to drink, that the Lord himself will answer them. Not just with a little bit of water, but he will make rivers flow in barren places, pools crop up where there are none, and trees grow up where they should not be. Which is all a way of saying that if God holds you by the hand, you will lack nothing, even as your world falls apart. That the power that the Lord has is always enough. And that he never abandons his people. And as he does all of these things for his people, he reveals his hand, verse 19, to the nations and demonstrates his glory. See, the Lord of history, friend, has you by the hand. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what life is for you. Maybe you're joyful and great. Or maybe you are in the midst of uncertainty. The Lord has you by, his, by your hand. And nothing can prize you from him. But the other thing happening in this chapter, as God, this picture of God is put before us, of the Lord of history who has us by our hand, is there's also this talk of idols, of other gods. And what's happening in this chapter is at the same time that God is affirming who he is, he is demonstrating that all his rivals are really nothing. Because in the midst of uncertainty, all of us, all of us are tempted towards something other than God. Did you notice? The third thing is that idols really are nothing compared to him. But earlier in the chapter, after the first court case, the nations respond. Did you notice it? They, they kind of they tremble and get afraid and they approach each other and they kind of pat each other on back and say, be strong. And they look at their idols and go, it's still really good. And the nails are still in the ground, and the, the, the artistry is good. You've done well. It's a great idol. It's working really well, guys. We are okay. And the scene is supposed to be utterly pathetic, of anxiously making sure this fake God is okay, while the real God turns the world upside down and apart. And then God, at the end of the chapter, brings these idols on trial. Verse 21, present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments. Tell us, you idols, what's going to happen. Tell us what the former things were. Or declare to us the things to come. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. But you are less than nothing. Your works are utterly worthless. Verse 29, see they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. You see, before this God who calls forth history and has the power to look after you regardless of what is happening, anything else you might think of turning to is really, really, pathetically nothing. And every country and every person has their preference of things to put stock in when the world starts to fall apart. And I love this idea of the Lord our God putting those things on trial. 
Not us, but them. Saying, do you actually have any power? Bank account, do you have any power? Do you know what's going to happen next? Reputation, can you protect them from what's about to happen? This kind of pathetic picture is painted. And yet also, in verse 24, this very strong remark, whoever chooses idols is detestable. Actually, it is just absurd and usurping of the true God to turn to anything less. So friend, I don't know for you today what you're putting stock in as you head into this year, but let the Lord put it on trial. Let it stand before Him, His power and glory and goodness and strength, and let it become nothing before Him. And turn away from it and toward the one who has you by the hand. But you might be thinking in the midst of this, well, how how do I know? How do I know that God has me by the hand? How do I know that he is the true God and others aren't? How do I know? Well, in the final court case, the way you tell the true God from the false God is that the true God can predict what's about to happen. That's the question that's put to the idol. No one has told of this. No one has foretold it. No one heard any words from you, idols, about what was about to happen, about the rise of Cyrus, about the overturning of the world again by this Persian empire. But what does he say? I was the first to tell Zion. Look, here they are. I gave to Jerusalem a messenger of good news. See, the rise of the Persian Empire under Cyrus actually proves God's godness. Because before it happened, before Cyrus overtook everything, God declared that it would happen. And it is a mark of his divinity, his control, his power, his knowledge, his glory, that he and he alone can predict what will come ahead. It's a beautiful, simple little proof for Israel that their God was really in charge. They already knew about this. None of the Babylonian gods said anything, yet their God did. I thought that's a beautiful piece of proof, isn't it? But don't we in Jesus, because of what has happened in Jesus Christ, are not we so much more certain of God's powerful hand? Blaise Pascal, thinking about prophecies and God's promises and then fulfilled in Jesus meditates in this way. If one man alone had made a book of predictions about Jesus Christ as to the time and the manner and Jesus Christ had come in conformity to these prophecies, this fact would have infinite weight. But there's much more here. Here is a succession of men during 4,000 years, who constantly and without variation come one after another to foretell this same event. See, if one person just got a book together and said, Jesus is coming is what it looked like, that would be compelling. But how about a succession of prophets that God sends over hundreds and thousands of years that paint not only broad pictures but specific details like Towns like Bethlehem, or regions like Galilee, or cities like Jerusalem, or lines like David's. Or Isaiah 53 that doesn't just say that he's going to suffer, but he's going to be silent as he suffers. 
And he's going to submit as he suffers. And he's going to suffer in a particular way. All through the Old Testament are these weird, odd, small details, thousands of them, that when Jesus comes, perfectly predict every part of him. So that what we have in Jesus Christ, as God foretold it, is compelling, convincing certainty that our God is the Lord of history. That he calls forth everything generation by generation. That he and he alone is the true God. And it is in Jesus Christ that God has taken hold of our hand and pulled us up from under sin and death by his own death and his own resurrection filling his right hand with such power that not even our grave can keep us from him. In Jesus Christ, we see the Lord of history. In Jesus Christ, we see the only certainty our world has. In Jesus Christ, God has taken hold of your hand and nothing in all this world can prize you from him. And so, friends, as you walk in this year, you don't need whatever idol you are storing in your back pocket. You need this Lord of history. Let's pray. Father, we do ask this evening that by your Spirit, you would show us, each of us, where we are putting our stock in the face of uncertainty. And that with this majestic passage today, you would confront us of the nothingness of that and the utter worthiness of our Jesus. Flood our hearts by your spirit with the certainty of knowing that you are the Lord of history, demonstrated in the death and resurrection and the fulfillment of your promises in Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.